listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. This is Farah Nazrali. I'm here with Doug Duncan Sensei and Catherine Pawasarad. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm very looking forward to our interview today. They're here in town to do some teachings and a public talk and also to lead a retreat. Doug Duncan Sensei is a Dharma teacher born in Canada, and he's known for his energetic, insightful, humorous, and practical approach to teaching paths of awakening. He's been teaching Dharma at centers around the world for more than 20 years and has received teachings from numerous Tibetan masters, and he's also had considerable experience in Sufi, Taoist, Zen, and Western mystery t- traditions. And he's here with one of his main apprentices, Catherine Pawasarat, <laughs> who is a founding member of the of Dharma Japan and Clear Sky Retreat Center near Cranbrook, B.C. They're here with us today to talk about the book, Dharma If You Dare, Living Life with Abandon, and the teachings that will be part of their public talk and their retreat. Welcome, and thank you for being with us on Drishti Point. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you. Just one slight correction. The apprentice is co-teacher. Co-teacher. Okay, mm-hmm. so you'll be co-teaching the retreat and the public talks. So I thought I'd start with the title of your book, Dharma If You Dare. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of the word dare, I think of something that we're being challenged to do or something that requires courage. Tell us a little bit about what this book challenges us to do? Um, well, I think first and foremost, the, the, the drive for any spiritual liberation or spiritual discipline in any tradition, East or West, uh, assumes a starting point of either I'm happy and I want to get happier, so I'm not happy enough. I guess that would be the greed type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm dissatisfied that there's something missing um, and the problem with uh, human beings in general is they're driven by habits, and habits follow routines, and those routines keep us in the familiar. So the the natural proclivity of a person is to fall back into a habit and a routine and a familiar pattern because it's familiar. But unfortunately, the nature of the familiar pattern is that it doesn't get you out or move you from your unhappiness because it's back in the familiar. So the dare part is that if you want to be more than you are, uh, you have to leave where you are in some fashion, metaphorically, whatever. So if you want to be more than you are, you have to leave what is familiar, and leaving what is familiar is always daring. They've done studies that show that people will fall back into the familiar the minute they get a little bit uncomfortable because it's familiar, even though the familiar is maybe not as pleasant or as nice as they'd like it to be. So the dare part means you have to kind of be a little brave, a little dissatisfied or a little bit more aspiring for the great um, mm-hmm. to move in some fashion from what is familiar. That's that's so true. And, and to um, put it in another way, I think it's human nature to want to live in our comfort zones. And so we're always daring to stretch our comfort zones so that the end result is that our comfort zones are quite enormous. Mm-hmm. 
and um, that makes for a pretty happy life if you're comfortable with all kinds of situations and to get there you have to dare to push those boundaries consistently. A nice metaphor for this one is when I was a small boy, um, you know, five years old, four years old, my mother said don't cross the street. Mm -hmm. You can play in the front yard, but don't cross the street, right, because I'm not old enough to cross the street, right? Well, if I waited for my mother to tell me it was now okay to cross the street, that'd probably be 50. (laughs) 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 So at some point, the kid goes, yeah, but I'm going to cross the street. I want to know what's on the other side of that street. I want to see what's over there, right? And and so that daring, and it's the same thing when you swing out of over a river on a rope and you're supposed to like go into you know you, you go out there and you go no and you go back out over the river you go no right? and then one day oh, you know you get too tired and, and this is maybe the whole key of awakening is you get too tired hanging out of the rope and you, one day you let go and the other shore so you mentioned uh, becoming more than who we are mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that because uh, you know I think for I, th- I think for some people, the idea of enlightenment or Buddhahood seems so far off or so mm-hmm. unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you explain in ways that we can understand what it means to be more than who we are? Mm. Good question. Um, the, the funny thing about it is, as I suppose, is that teachers or guides or mentors or whatever we call them have been telling us how to do that for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> and it always comes back. Every every life, it comes back to like, how does this relate to me, mm-hmm. right? And so the the main thing about being more than what you are is you have to start with being less of what you are. So if you think of a glass full of water, you know you can't put any lemonade in there, and you can't put any uh, soda pop in there. You can't put whiskey in there. You can't put wine in there. It's full, right? And that glass of wine, that glass of water is is perfectly fine as it is. Right, but you don't get the experience of. So this is a bit like uh, eating. I love Italian food, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like eating Italian every day, right? And so to have a different meal, right? To become more than you are, you have to make some room from what you already know to allow something else to happen to enrich your life. Mm-hmm. So if we consider a rich life or an enriched life to be a range of experience, a range of understanding, a range of friends, a range of whatever. We have to make some room for there to be that new experience. So becoming more than you are starts by taking something out, leave, putting some room in for silent time or putting some room in for walks in nature or something. Mm-hmm. And then, like if you're overweight, for instance, you know, you're not going to get less overweight by sitting on the couch. you got to make room for going outside. So it starts with less, and then you go outside, you do something different, you feel better, hopefully. So it might mean emptying out of certain things that are in our lives that may not um, cultivate happiness. May not serve us well. May not serve us anymore. Mm -hmm. But they did at one point, and I think this is important to remember, that every pattern and every habit we have worked for us at some point in our lives. So if I had a screaming father being learning to be quiet worked for me when I was five, maybe. But it doesn't work for me when I'm 35 and, and trying to work in the world. I need to empty out the screaming father and make room for something else so that now I can meet that situation with fresh eyes. So a lot of it seems to be bringing awareness or cultivating consciousness around the habits that ha- have come from our cultural and childhood conditioning. 
uh, tribal. I, I, we use the word cultural. We also use the word tribal mm-hmm. or conditioned parental. Mm-hmm. Parent, parents are form of part of the tribe. Being able to identify those patterns is huge. Is such an enormous part of self knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we can look at them, take a step back, look at them more objectively, and and ask ourselves: Is this actually the person that I want to be right now? Mm-hmm. And we have that freedom of choice, especially now in this modern day and age. Uh, we have so many tools and resources available to us, and it's a wonderful time in that sense, in terms of the potential for liberation. Mm-hmm. I read a book recently that said 90% of what we do is done from habit and therefore unconscious. The classic example is a sleepwalker who can cook a meal and drive a car asleep, or driving a car really? from here to yeah dr- oh. drive a car <laughs> from here to home and not see anything because you're talking to your friend about mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. you saw and you mm-hmm. missed everything mm-hmm. and if somebody jumps in front of your car you're there and you can stop but up until then you've missed it so mm-hmm. this this un this unconscious way of living is built into our routines and our habits because we groove them so the minute we have to do something that's outside of our habit we get uncomfortable and that's why people shy away from awakening or shy away from the spiritual life insofar as it makes them feel initially uncomfortable because it interferes with the habits. Conditioning, tribal, parental. And the parental conditioning, goes. I think the Bible says, unto the seventh generation, right? So it goes back seven, it goes back at least seven generations. I'm living unchallenged to being conscious now. I'm living in 10 or 15 generations ago. And the situations, the conditions have changed. Remarkable. So when we bring uh, awareness to these patterns, is it enough to have the awareness to interrupt those patterns? Or are there other things that we need to do to, uh, for the power of those patterns to be broken? That's a really good question. I'd say awareness is the first step, and lots can happen with the awareness. And I think the more conscious we are and proactive about exploring those patterns, the greater the potential for transformative change, conscious change. Awareness. What what would you say? Yeah, awareness is step one. Mm -hmm. But awareness by itself isn't enough. It has to follow by action. And you touch on a nerve, (laughs) I think, for most spiritual teachers teaching in the modern world, is that a lot of people are listening. uh, A lot of people understand. A lot of people get it. Uh, but then there's a slip between the lip and the cup where mm-hmm. it doesn't get applied into their relationships or it doesn't get applied into their workplace mm-hmm. because they don't have a training. Uh, and so the awareness is first, the training is second. And if you look at sorry, if you look at the salutation to the Buddha, mm-hmm. it, so on, right? It says trainer of God's it doesn't say a God, doesn't say a deity, doesn't say an amazing being doesn't doesn't it just says a trainer so all spiritual work is a training based on the awareness so first the awareness then the training or in the process of training you become more aware they're kind of a two mm-hmm. feet you know so the training would be to for example if someone has a pattern of getting angry the training would be to catch yourself in the moments that you find it triggered and not to leave any area untouched of your life. Mm. It, is that how we would apply a training? 
And again, uh, the training is like scuba diving, right? Mm -hmm. So I can swim on the surface. Let's say most people swim on the surface, the Maslow's three foundational needs, survival, so on, right? And I can look And that can be amazing. And that can be amazing. Snorkeling is amazing. Yeah, you can look down, right? But if I have a snorkel, I can go down to 10 feet, right? So the training... The training is, I guess you might say that if, if you're going to be Buddha or fully awakened or Christ conscious or cosmic conscious or universal conscious, whatever you want to call it, you got to go to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. you got to see the full range of the experience. And people get on and off the bus depending on how fascinated they are. Uh-huh. So and the training follows, the training will take you first, you'll see it. Okay, I get angry, I need to do something about my anger. Then you go, oh, okay. I see my anger, but I'm getting anger anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm when angry. you say you have to go deeper, are you talking about fundamental ignorances within the human mind or psyche? No, actually, th- this is the this is the amazing point of the Eastern philosophy religions is that your orig- according to Christianity, as I understand it, your original nature is somehow flawed, mm-hmm. original sin, and I think that's a philosophical and psychological error. And maybe not even a proper interpretation of what was meant when it was said. Mm-hmm. But in Eastern culture, Eastern traditions, your fundamental nature is pure. So there is no fundamental ignorance. There's only surface scum mm-hmm. or detritus. dirt on the mirror. Detritus or, or dust on the mirror. And of course, mm-hmm. dust is also manure, um, compost. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the dust is bad. It's just it's keeping you from seeing clearly the nature of the mirrors. So you can even keep the dust if you want. Mm-hmm. But... You got to be able to see that clear mirror if you want to be in a place that Catherine says where you have really free will to choose. Because most of our, as we said earlier, most of our choices are habitualized, and their responses to cope with situations that might be outmoded. So, could we say <laughs> on on one level to be operating at a personality level, and on another level to be operating at the level of our essence or nature? Our fundamental essence, our nature. Is that what we're getting at when you say we to go deeper using the scuba diving example? I think that's a good way to put it, Farah. And we could also say um, the deeper is the cr- is we're really active participants in creating our own reality, rather than passive reality is happening. It reminds me of the um, on a superficial level, we all have garbage and we put it out at the curb or there's a dump somewhere and maybe we know a bit about the dump and maybe we help to, you know, we get more active and make sure the dump is safe and that the waste is being properly managed. And I just learned about a project, I think, in Bolivia where they're making classical musical instruments out of things from the dump. Oh, really? And playing and playing Beethoven or Bach or whatever it was on junk. And maybe. this is the community that lives next to the dump. They have a children's orchestra. And, and that's what I would call really... Um, that's alchemy, right? That's taking mm-hmm. garbage and turning it into something beautiful. And and that's the process we're talking about, and it's layered. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a uh, situation that would normally evoke anger could be seen as a situation that could evoke patience. Or, or yeah. the power to break through a situation that needs breakthrough. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the underlying idea I think I hear is that all negative emotions are based on fear. All negative habits and actions are based on fear. It's all based on fear. Mm-hmm. So fear what? And 
then when you meet the fear, this is the dare part again, perhaps, mm-hmm. is that unless you meet the fear, the fear owns you. So if you're in a if you're in a ship at sea in a typhoon or a hurricane, you don't run from it. You turn your ship into the hurricane and you ride it out. And the fear from most people is that if I meet that hurricane, I'm going to be destroyed. So they run from it mm-hmm. and they spend their life and lifetimes running, not because they can't do it, but simply because they don't have confidence that if they turn their ship into the wave, they're much, much safer than running from it. And what is mm-hmm. that fear? Like if we can name it other than a you know, mm-hmm. in, in a metaf- in metaphorical mm-hmm. ways, what are those deepest fears? Well, I've come up with what I think are four primaries, right? Fear of uh, being evil, I think, drives a lot of people. That if I really let my true nature out, I would, God knows what I would do, right? I mean, at any level of in emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fear of being annihilated, that I'm going to be wiped off if I get awake and I'm going to be wiped off and I won't remember my ATM number. What, what's What's my ATM? <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, small joke. Third one is fear of being abandoned. Mm-hmm. Huge. Mm-hmm. And the last one that I've kind of identified is fear of going insane. Hmm. Right. So you're not really terrified. Like the get, we're in gas down here or on the edge of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the, I think the worst fear people have when they go out and see the homeless people and the schizophrenics and the drug people, that they're going to be like them. But the fear isn't that you're going to be that. Because if you were that, you just live it. Your fear is somebody's going to see you living that life. Your your parents are going to come by, or, mm-hmm. or you're you know, or you're going to be seen as a failure, right? Uh, but if you're actually in that situation, you just live it out. So the fear is always what is I think it was Roosevelt or was it Roosevelt who said, um, "There's nothing to fear but fear itself." Mm-hmm. But these, I think these fears manifest, the deep fears manifest, I think, in these four ways. Annihilation, insanity, evil, and, and abandonment. abandonment. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's where the second part of the title comes in, living life, um, really? living a life with abandon. Mm-hmm. So. And that, sorry, that brings us, I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. That brings us head to head with the shadow mm-hmm. and head to head with the, the parental tribal need to belong. We're, we're, we're animals. We're, we're group animals. We survive by being in a group. Exile is death. Mm-hmm. So needing approval. All of that. Mm-hmm. Not being shunted off. I think Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit yes. mystic, said the greatest fear in humankind is the fear of dead ending. So if you're going spiritual and everybody else is going material, who's going to be right? you're going to look very weird. So your tendency is always going to be go back to the herd. Mm-hmm. Lest you end up alone. And do we meet, you mentioned meeting these fears face on. Um, so are there also trainings that we can apply when we meet fears head on? Or is the training, for example, um, some kind of meditative practice that gets us in touch with our, our pristine awareness in nature? I think the most fundamental practice for assisting us in meeting fears is is breathing and being in touch with the breath. Because normally when we get afraid, we stop breathing, cuts off the oxygen to the brain, <laughs> and then we're really in trouble. And um, how how wonderful that such a simple practice is so powerful. Often if we catch ourselves not breathing, we breathe again. We feel so much better. It's like night and day. Mm-hmm. So that's, in a sense, it's the... 
starting point, most fundamental one, and in another sense, it's the one that all the other ones go back to. And then, yes to both your questions. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's formal training you can do. I mean, formal, I shouldn't say formal. There is there is intuitive practice uh, things you can do. Traditionally in the East, that's been known as guru yoga. Mm-hmm. And then there's... Um, Meditations and and um, retreat situations, quiet contemplation, mantra visualization that you can hold your abandonment alone in a cabin and you can live with that and you have something to do to ride out those feelings of we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so the two they're two like two feet. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's hard to walk on one foot. So in the east, it's called samatha and insight. So samatha meaning the absorption meditations, bliss, so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then insight being the, the penetrating question, and so the insight takes you through the shadow aspects of the consciousness, and the and the samatha meditations make you feel good, so that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And I I mean no um, disrespect to any other traditions. I think this is why I love Buddhism so much, is there are hundreds and perhaps thousands of different um, techniques and and tools, and. Um, if one doesn't work, you just try another one. And if another one doesn't work, you just try another one. And if you're a person like me who's sort of short on patience, um, even if I'm going from one to the next, eventually it accumulates. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're helpful. And, and on, at this point, we should probably introduce the other point, which is you really need community. Because there are certain things that don't arise in meditation, and there are certain things that don't arise with your guru. They only arise with other people, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's, it's there where I think, in my view, it's in terms of the modern world. I would, I would say that 20 years ago, I'd say the West, mm-hmm. but now I think it's just global. There are just certain places where there's no training in that world. So we're focusing a lot on community and working in community and group guru or team learning, mm-hmm. right? Because there are areas where unless those lessons or insights get applied in that situation they don't get learned so it's now let's come back and that's the hardest point right now as I see it I don't know what other teachers guides think but from my point of view this is the hardest one to get people to is community and and so developing um, so say for example one works on developing and cultivating a harmony within it's to apply that harmony in a working environment with others so that there can be this cohesive group exactly harmony and you know it's uh, mm. it's an expression i use too often probably but it's hard to remember that when you're up to your neck in alligators your original intention was to drain the swamp mm-hmm. and while we're meditating we're draining the swamp or when we're with our guru maybe we're draining the swamp and then we're with other people and we're in alligators mm-hmm. and we have no training to keep the spacious player mind present while we're in alligator mode <laughs> and, uh, and most people don't want to be trained here um, even spiritual types don't really want to be trained here because it interferes with their habits, habits. Oh. their familiarity we mm-hmm. all, we'll go to the familiar mm-hmm. because it's familiar even when it's worse by a factor of 10 mm-hmm. to what is good because it's familiar it's very scary to leave the familiar Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's definitely true. Uh, I'd like to come to what you mentioned just earlier in your answer, and that is the practice of guru yoga. Mm. Um, I haven't read the book, but I heard reference in the description about how it explains the relationship between a teacher and student. And mm. 
I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how um, someone on a spiritual path who does have a teacher might be able to get the most out of that relationship. Hmm, good question. Should I start? Um, well, our our teaching emphasizes guru yoga as as um, the fastest path for people who really would like liberation from suffering in this lifetime. Different paths approach it in different ways. Um, we're all evolving. We're all um, moving towards awakening one way or, or another over lifetimes is our belief. And um, it's possible to do it within this lifetime. And, and that's what we embrace. And the quickest path is guru yoga. And the reason it's so quick is because um, Islam means surrender and guru yoga is a kind of surrender. It's actually accepting that another human being is wiser than I am, has more insight than I do, and that um, my the ego naturally fights against all of that. The ego is a kind of argumentative entity <laughs> that always wants its own way. And to practice guru yoga is, is overriding that human instinct. My ego wants its own way, and yet my neocortex, the most evolved part of my brain, recognizes that this being, even if I don't agree with what they're saying right now, I do recognize that on some level they seem much wiser than I am. They have something that I don't. <laughs> they have something that I don't, and they have more experience in this than I do. So even if I don't like it, I am going to sit with it and, and listen and examine it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's kind of um, ego override in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of really interesting because the ego, by definition, is separate and alone. Mm -hmm. Everybody right. lives in their own separate aloneness in their ego. You just can't. Even if you're married and you got, or you have five husbands and they're all in the same bed with you, you're still alone in the middle of all that. Mm -hmm. So the argumentation is is that it's in order to surrender to the, in order for the ego to surrender, it has to surrender to aloneness. And it's easier to do that alone <laughs> in a meditation hut mm -hmm. than it is with other people. So you can get people who are very awakened as long as they're alone. Mm -hmm. right? But the minute they show up with other people, then they, then you got you can't just sit there and smile. Well, you could just sit there and smile. I think the Hindus call it darshan. You mm -hmm. just sit there and radiate, and it's really cool. But when now we're, we're going to go, you and I are going to go buy a car, and now it's not darshan anymore. You want a Ford, I want a Honda. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now all of a sudden... Your ego's in there, right? Mm -hmm. And so the nature, as Catherine said, Islam means to surrender. It's surrendering not to somebody. The guru isn't a person. The guru isn't a, a human being with conditioning foibles. They, they are in their relative sense. I'm just like a guy from Regina. Right. Mm -hmm. But in their absolute sense, they realize this emptiness, I guess, with, in Sanskrit, shunyata, you, you uh, emptiness, spaciousness, the emptying of the glass of the water, mm -hmm. meeting those four fears. So the guru doesn't have anything or any talent or ability or understanding or wisdom that nobody else doesn't have, except they can rest in the emptiness. And for the ego, the ego by definition can't, mm -hmm. because the ego by definition is separate from the emptiness. <laughs> so guru yoga is really learning to be one with the emptiness in your own being, you use an external person so that wherever the threat is of their competition or challenge to your ego, you learn to not let that 
trigger you into ego responses. Mm -hmm. So it might be about money, it might be about power, it might be about food, it could be about anything, depending on your or someone's particular habit train identification. And then I suppose when the... Um, when the when you surrender that ego, then it becomes very easy to interact with other people because there's no separation in terms well, of how we Well, I'd see. like to agree with you, but I can't. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's still a pain in the ass. Uh, but it's a pain in the ass that comes from emptiness. Mm -hmm. So uh, you and I, for instance, say you're dwelling in emptiness and I'm dwelling in emptiness, right? That part, we don't have a problem. But when we go to that car dealership, right, and I don't look at Honda's better than a Ford, it gets better mine. You go, well, yeah, but this car is more comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. There's no avoiding that. Samsara is a struggle. The, I think the Buddha said all formations are suffering, right? It's all, everything in the appearing world is in struggle. It's the way of it. Mm -hmm. We've got to live with it. But what makes it livable is that, is that cosmic, whatever, what awakened consciousness that says, okay, yeah, there's a struggle, but at the core, at the essence of all, it's, it's, it's empty, and because it's empty, it's blissful, and it's compassionate, and it's loving. But when we get to the car lot, I may not look so loving, <laughs> or, w or you, for that matter. I think, too, what we forget with gurus is that um, we think, oh, they're beyond suffering, and they're in charge, and you know, they get to tell their students what to do or, or people are listening to them and I think we forget that teachers are actually um, deliberately putting themselves in situations where people are suffering in order to be of assistance mm -hmm. so um, even though teachers may not have that that ego suffering um, or maybe may have transcended that ego suffering. They're coming back to be in the midst of all of everybody else's, all of our ego suffering. Mm -hmm. um, so the in, so in that sense, the like suffering us. continues. Or yeah. they look like us, and, they yeah. act, <laughs> and if they're good, they act like us, mm -hmm. right? So it's and they're like in there with us, yeah. with the sleeves gloves. rolled up and the gloves off, mm -hmm. and that's the difference between political correctness or a licensed psychotherapist or someone in a professional position, they gotta wear the gloves. They gotta there's ethics in terms of required to re, wear the you know, gloves. Law right. and being, you know, all that stuff, right? But a, the guru says, Okay, we're like we're we're down to like baby and mummy, right? And when mummy's changing the diaper there's poop. Mm -hmm. And that poop is gonna get on the guru too. Mm -hmm. So um, so the guru may not be the best word anymore for people. They I think there's you know, but the principle stays the same. But maybe the word should change: guide, mentor. Uh, um, what else? Uh, friend. friend, best friend, spiritual friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the uh, you know, the, insofar as you start working with the shadow aspects, which is what those four fears we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. it's going to get dirty. At some level, it gets dirty, right? Um, and in the process of getting dirty, both the guru and the student get dirty. Right? But if, the, if, if you have the sense that the motivation is for awakening and that the heart is loving kindness and the, and the interaction principle is based on compassion, then dirt is just going to be part of the process. Some Everybody that we admire uh, out there, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, weren't super popular when they were doing it mm -hmm. because they were messing with 
the paradigm. Mm -hmm. And guru, by definition, is messing with the paradigm. So I'm not saying every guru is always as guru-y as they could be, mm -hmm. but when you start messing with the, you know, the habits and the conditionings that cover those four fears, there's even the best guru is going to look not so good on depending on the day. Mm -hmm. So that's not to f that's not to um, um, uh, what lessen whatever abuses or errors have been made, but you know life is a kind of a mess, which is not to uh, what's the word to rationalize it or ex or to ignore it, but to recognize that that's going to be part of the process. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that you will be here talking about in Vancouver is uh, spiritual archetypes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that maybe we could speak a little bit about that. Sure. Um, what is the value of using archetypes in, in transformation, spiritual awakening or transformation? That's a good question, Farah. I, I am thinking of it currently as... Um, if I find myself in a particular situation and a particular kind of challenge arises, I can apply the practice of a particular spiritual archetype as the antidote or as the medicine. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling confused and foggy-headed, then I can do a practice of a wisdom deity, for example, mm -hmm. to try to bring greater clarity to the situation. This I've is, been this struggling. Is all by way, this is all by way of fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretend that you're wise. Mm -hmm. okay. This is this is the key to tantra. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll see myself as already being wise, compassionate, loving, rather than waiting. Mm -hmm. Carry on. Well, I had a cold last week, and I was lying in bed feeling pretty miserable, and then I thought, well, how about I just do medicine Buddha mantras? Mm -hmm. And so I went from feeling miserable to saying a healing mantra, and it felt so much better. Right, so I've got that choice of do I want to sit here and go through like how miserable I'm feeling or do I want to lay here and think about healing? Mm -hmm. Got it. And are the, the archetypes, are they centered, the archetypes that you'll be presenting at the public talk, are they centered around um, Buddhist deities? Um, not exclusively. Um, I think when we talk about subtle archetypes, we move more towards the transpersonal archetypes. Mm -hmm. And I think Jung, Carl Jung, talks about three types of archetypes. I, think I forget ego, soul, and spirit, maybe, if I have that right. And uh, so he's made those distinctions. But the archetypes in the East are all almost always transpersonal. Mm -hmm. They're always about underlying principles. So we just did a, at Clear Sky, our meditation center in, BC, in the East Kootenays, we just did a workshop with a woman on money archetypes. Mm -hmm. And by seeing what your archetype is around money, for instance, you really tells you a lot about your life. So, for instance, there's the warrior, the person who go out and make their business, and then there's the magician, the person who figures it's it's all going to work out. I just follow my bliss, and I do what I need to do, and somehow the conditions will be there. And then you have the martyr. So these are just ways of pinpointing your behavior mm -hmm. in a situation now that isn't just, oh, well, far has got an issue about wealth or something. Now it's like, oh, there's the innocent thinking that somebody else will take care of it, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, there's the innocent. Now that's not a useful archetype in terms of me being independent economically. So, But I now I see the archetype, I can go, oh, well, I can choose now to introduce the warrior, which is go get a degree in biomedicine or something. So uh, part of it is recognizing 
our own archetypes that rule our own lives, and part of it is learning uh, other archetypes that can help us change those patterns and develop a better way of um, meeting our world. I don't think the archetypes change the patterns. What the archetype does is let you see the pattern that's in place. Got it. You then choose a different archetype as a... Uh, replacement therapy. As a kind of learning tool, replacement therapy, and you apply that archetype as a principle to learn. So it's a bit like any kind of learning. If I want to learn how to speak, I listen to my mom. If I want to learn how to chop wood, I listen to my dad, right? It's like a, it's, it's learning. It's you. We learn through imitation. We learn through mimicking. We mm-hmm. learn through uh, copying. Mm-hmm. Right? And as we do that, we slowly make it our own. So, for example, we could, um, if there was a situation in our life that required courage, we could think of uh, archetypes, the warrior type that might help us draw upon a different source of strength. Sure. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, that's what you're calling upon the guru, coming back to that old term, the spiritual friend, uh, is that they're fearless. Uh, They should be, anyway. And if they're fearless, the reason they're fearless is because they are holding no shadow elements. Uh, They're not being terrorized by any of their shadow elements because they've already made love or embraced that fear. Mm -hmm. So rather than being a fear of annihilated, I'm happy to be annihilated. (laughs) Rather than being afraid of being insane, I'm happy to be insane. (laughs) And so on. Which, of course, makes you pretty sane. (laughs) Relatively speaking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we're nearing the end of our time, and it mm-hmm. seems to have gone by very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I know you'll be leading a. You're such a great interviewer, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you are. Thank you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to offer to our listeners, um, particularly about the teachings you'll be giving in the retreat, Awakening in This Lifetime? The retreat at Hollyhock, starting on Sunday. Um, I, I would love to say that um, awakening is possible in this lifetime, and um, not everyone knows why that means or why would I want to go for that. And to me, I when the more awakened we are, the more we can benefit other beings. And when I say beings, I mean all living beings, other people, animals, plants, different species. Like globe and unseen, the beings we can't see. And when I look at the planet today, I think we could use more of that. And (laughs) um, that really keeps me motivated. The Mm -hmm. more awakened I get, the more I can help. Mm -hmm. And um, that won't be, not everyone will have the same motivation, but but I just want to put that out there. And from this perspective, it's like when we landed on the moon, the guy said, was it Mitchell, I forget his name, Armstrong? One small step for man, one giant step for mankind. Of course, if they did it now, it would be one small step for humans, <laughs> one giant step for humankind. Mm-hmm. We, we learn, we grow. But the awakening, I, I think it should be really um, presented. It's a gerund. It's not a noun. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's as my, as my teacher once said, awakening isn't the end of the path. It's the beginning of your ability to really learn. Mm-hmm. It's the start. And that it's a birthright. It's our birthright. And that everybody... Uh, short of maybe Down syndrome or, you know, and even then they can have their own version of awakening, but that, that if you have, if you can pass grade four, you can awaken. 
There's nothing special in it. It's really not that hard to do, except meeting those things that... Might be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like you said. There are moments mm-hmm. of uncomfort, but I feel that when I'm walking in the park, you know, my legs get stiff. I mean, uncomfort, discomfort is not out of anybody's life. Mm-hmm. So the discomfort of awakening is temporarily maybe a little bit more intense at places, but long-term... So a bit of a short-term pain for a long-term gain sometimes versus a long-term ache for a no-term resolution. And so it's so much more fun. And it's more fun. <laughs> it's just plain more, more fun. More interesting. You know, it's like my parents, they're passed on now, but my parents, they wouldn't, you know, they eat kind of Swiss chalet. That would be, you know, Swiss chalet, Swiss chalet, Swiss right? They didn't eat, they didn't like Indian food and they didn't like Italian food. And they, you know, it's like, it's, you know, Wow. What a missed opportunity just for fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, fun. I Awakening is fun. I can certainly say that, uh, you know, the teachers I interview that are in this realm mm. of teaching and mm. practicing, that they are the happiest people that mm. I, I see on this planet. Yeah. And so I think it definitely confirms what you're saying. And everybody is a teacher to somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, again, that layer of the ocean, right? I mean, if... You know, even if you're just surfing on, swimming on the surface, some little kids on the shore are wanting to come out. You hold their hand. Right. So every everybody's your teacher in that sense. Beautiful. A beautiful way to end is Thank you, to Farrell. think of ourselves both as teacher and student. Yes. Yeah. And that takes me to Milton in Paradise Lost where he said, that I think it's the teacher, the school teacher, who says, gladly would he learn and gladly would he teach. And I think the awakened being is just open the channel to learning. They're always learning in mm-hmm. every situation, under every condition. And the more ego-structured is only learning when their ego isn't bashing them around. Mm-hmm. So it's the only difference. Yay for learning. Yay for learning. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for being here on Drishti yeah, Point. You. I hope you. the retreat goes well. Thank and you. Uh, I hope that you'll call us next time you're back in Vancouver. Oh, and that'd be very nice. Thank you. Continue where we left off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.